more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. there's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. It is March 8th, and you're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. And on a Sunday, that can only mean one thing. It is time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I am Lisa Hildebrand. And I'm Heather Forsyth. Here at Oregon State, we have over 4,000 graduate students who are in over 80 different programs of study. So here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature their research and their personal stories every single week. And if you're a grad student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show or being a part of the show, you can find out more about what's going on here at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration. And there you can find links to the blogs associated with the podcast or with the radio show and also find links to the podcast and also find links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight on International Women's Day Night Day, (laughs) we are joined by a female scientist, Winnie Wang. How's it going? Good. I love podcasts and radios, and so I'm really excited to be here. Yeah. And yeah, we're an all-women's cast here tonight yes there's in addition to international women's day i'm told that it's also international women's day on the radio specifically and we are all international women on the radio i would say so (laughs) awesome (laughs) well let's um get it going here winnie is in the department of microbiology and she um studies seagrass microbiomes but before we kind of dig into all of that um when we had our like pre-interview with winnie earlier this week um we kind of got held up before we could even (laughs) dig into the science because we went like oh so your name's winnie wang right and then we had a bit of a conversation about that so you want to yeah lead us in (laughs) yeah so that's a conversation that i've been having with myself a lot recently so um i think most people at osu know me as winnie wang Uh, But my legal name is Lu Wang. So my family moved to the U.S. when I was eight years old. And my mom was like, "Okay, well, since you're in the U.S., we're going to give you an American name. And so she named me Winnie. So interestingly, they're both my given names given by my mom. Um, And throughout my, I guess, middle school, high school and even undergrad, I've been just like really I felt discomfort and a sort of tension whenever my legal name was brought up. And I never really self-reflected until I got to OSU. Um, because just of my experiences at OSU have led me to kind of self-reflect on that. Um, it's really made me think about like my choices, why that, why Winnie is my preferred name, like what sorts of values am I setting off, am I like mm-hmm. giving out to the world? Um, and it's definitely still a work in progress. Like clearly, I still go by Winnie in a lot of situations, but I am 
trying out my legal name, sort of, when I go to, like, new places, like, for example, like, a new gym in town, I'll be like, call me Lou, and then I'll see what happens. Um, yeah, so that's, it's a complicated introduction. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't usually introduce myself that way, but I don't know, I feel like uh, maybe other people have also struggled with that, so it's mm. just something to bring to yeah. the conversation. It's yeah. a super interesting and relevant conversation for lots of people, and in particular, I think academia, where we're so tied to our name mm. and our resume and our publications mm. and our, you know, anything associated with your name. And I think women in particular have these conversations a lot, a bit, especially women in science and women in academia. It's constantly like, "What is my name? Can I change? change can I change my name mm. if I feel that that's more my identity? Should I take my partner's name when we get married?" Should I hyphenate my name, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah. Yeah. And that's that's been a uh, top of a conflict for me as well, because, you know, my name is Lu Wang. It's there are a lot of Lu Wangs out there. Like, <laughs> at OSU, there are at least two because uh, the other Lu Wang gets my emails, uh, gets emails addressed to me a Aww. lot. Um, and Have so, you ever met? No. Oh. I wonder. <laughs> um, yeah. So I've thought about like if I I mean I do publish under Lu Wang and I've thought about like how easy mm. how easily can people find me and find my work and like would they confuse my work with other people's mm-hmm. work so mm. yeah it's it's a lot yeah but you've decided to go as Winnie for tonight for the purposes yes. of the show because that is what you I guess when you first came to OSU that's yeah yeah what you yeah, yeah. went by yeah. <laughs> cool well um we're kind of gonna we're gonna come full circle at the end of this interview and kind of go back to your background and your time here. But for now, let's dig into that science. Um, you study seagrasses yeah. and more specifically the microbiomes of seagrasses. And so for all those people like me who are not um, microbiologists, <laughs> have a, just a quick definition. What is a microbiome? Yeah. So I guess my definition of a microbiome would be all of the microbes that live in a given area and then that's kind of like up for to your definition to whatever it is so like the human microbiome that's a microbiome mm. on the human body and the seagrass bi- microbiome is the microbes that live on seagrasses okay so it's small things though yeah microbes bacteria are small. Yeah. viruses archaea etc yeah cool it's funny because this is the second week in a row now we've talked with someone who works on the microbiome. <laughs> so it's a theme this month is the microbiome. So our listeners are really, really Dialed digging in. in. <laughs> yes. But yeah, you actually work at a, the thing that's really cool about studying the microbiome is how there's so many things and organisms and ways of studying the microbiome and making it relevant. So before, you want to talk about what specifically you're looking at the microbiome of seagrasses. Yeah. And seagrasses are multiple parts is something I learned in the past week. Yeah. Okay. So I guess to back up, I study the microbiome of seagrasses and how the, that microbiota can change uh, due to human-induced stressors. And so the two stressors that I look at are eutrophication, so that's nutrient pollution, and ocean acidification. That's when uh, the seawater gets acidified due to increasing CO2 concentrations in the air that results into uh, the ocean absorbing that CO2. Um Yeah, so seagrasses are really important because, well, for a lot of reasons. One, they sequester a lot of carbon just within their biomass and and within the sediment. So they they are like 0.2% of the ocean, but they uh, sequester like 10% of the carbon that is sequestered in the ocean. Mm -hmm. So there's 
uh, definitely an imbalance in the amount of work that they do. Um, <laughs> additionally, they serve as habitats for a lot of important species. So just throughout my field work, I've seen uh, great blue herons out there. They're like fishing for things. I've seen a lot of bivalves, so scallops and clams. There's also a lot of talk about seagrasses and oysters potentially being in symbiosis. So yeah, they're important yeah. ecologically and economically. Yeah, relevant. Yeah, <laughs> and so you talked about how you're studying um, seagrasses in light of like two problems that, like, us the world are faced with: ocean acidification and eutrophication. So the input of nutrients into, or, like, excessive input of nutrients into the environment. And so for both of those, you have pretty different study sites. Um, yeah. Yeah. Do you want to tell us about those? Those. Sure. <laughs> um, so. Uh, the eutrophication project was definitely a learning experience. It was my first big kind of like large scale experiment that I think I've ever done. Um, so it took place in Newport, Oregon. Uh, so there's uh, the Hatfield Marine Science Center out there. So that was a great place for me to kind of collect my samples and then actually be able to manipulate my samples um, at Hatfield. Um, so for that experiment, I actually went out, this was like summer two, two or three years ago where I went out um, and it's really difficult to collect seagrasses because first of all, you have to wait until it's low tide and that's usually mm -hmm. at like 6 a.m. Um, <laughs> also, you're wearing these uh, these waders uh, so, and these like heavy uh, rain boots and you're kind of waiting out there in these like really they're just like mud flats that you kind of have to like crawl around and mm. my first time out there I literally just crawled to the seagrass because I couldn't get up I kept sinking um yeah so for that experiment I collected I think over 200 seagrass individuals as well as the uh, uh accompanying sediments or mm. I guess mud um in these buckets and those buckets are really heavy like I consider myself to be relatively fit and I could not lift those buckets so yeah. there was a lot of help involved in that yeah field work is not glamorous people <laughs> <laughs> yeah um and i have pictures to prove it um yeah so i took those uh seagrass individuals and the mud and i put them in this so hatfield has this uh kind of facility it's called the experimental seawater facility mm -hmm. they have a uh, flow flow through seawater it's really helpful for uh experiments so we had these i think like eight tanks out there where i planted the seagrass put them in the mud and for half of those i put in uh, fertilizer to kind of uh, mimic eutrophication and the other i just left as controls and so i let that run for about a month where i collected uh water and sediment samples for just a uh, for nutrient concentrations to see, like, is a fertilizer working? Mm. Uh, I collected microbiome samples, and that's basically just uh, the leaves and the roots. Mm -hmm. um, and so, like Heather had mentioned, compartments. Uh, <laughs> so I to kind of help me uh, orient myself around the seagrass, I've kind of been like, okay, well, there are several compartments of the seagrass. There's the leaves, there's the roots, and there's the rhizomes. And I found through, actually through this eutrophication experiment, that each compartment has a different microbiome. Mm. Um, yeah, so yeah. I let that run for four months, and uh, then the rest of that time I spent in the lab <laughs> extracting DNA. <laughs> yeah. It uh, makes sense. It's maybe not obvious why different parts would have different microbiomes, right? So whenever we were talking about it, in my mind, I was like, it's grass and it's all exposed to the same thing. <laughs> and why would they need different bacteria on different parts of the leaf? And we were talking about in the human microbiome, right? 
the stomach, for example, would need a different microbiome set of organisms than your skin. And that is also true for seagrass, is yeah, my understanding. That's, that's a really good analogy. Yes. Or thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so... I mean, what did you find? So you found that the microbiomes are different on, yeah. on these different parts, but what related to the eutrophication did you find? Yeah, and I, I feel like that's most results of microbiome studies. It's like, things are different. Yeah. <laughs> I'm always just like, well, I, what does that mean? Um, so I think a big limitation in microbiome work is like, especially the method that I used, it can only tell you like which microbes were there. Mm. Um, and even then, the identification is kind of tricky. And so you're not 100% sure, like, is that what that is? Um, and so you're constantly, I'm always like hedging what I say. It's like, well, this may lead to that yeah. or at least potentially <laughs> um so anyway going back to what i found um so i found that eutrophication may <laughs> enrich for uh these bacteria that can uh cycle sulfur and that's really important for seagrasses because so they live in the ocean where there's a lot of sulfate and uh in low or no oxygen conditions that sulfate can be uh converted to hydrogen sulfide which is actually a toxin for many plants including mm. seagrasses and so um because these excess nutrients can lead to a depletion of oxygen just through like other metabolism at play, um, that can lead to an increase in hydrogen sulfide. So I found this enrichment of certain bacteria that are related to sulfur cycling. And so that's kind of leading me to conclude that eutrophication can potentially uh, be detrimental to seagrass meadows. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of science is always like this could be or potentially. So it's like important to like fill those gaps because we don't know anything about it so far. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in the case of microbiome stuff, at least what I do, there's a lot of hypothesis generation. So mm -hmm. if I see this pattern, like there could be other ways to test it uh, more directly. Mm. And so how is eutrophication, I guess, relevant in nearshore environments? Like where would those nutrients come from? Ah, that's a really good question. <laughs> so that could come, I mean, that would come from runoff from uh, residential sites and industry mm -hmm. sites, uh, agricultural sites. And so my experiment most closely mimicked agriculture because I used fertilizer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which I get, which is very big here in Oregon. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so your second site is not like the Oregon coast. No, it's very different. That's <laughs> something completely random. So fun fact, at least it's fun for me. There are over sixty species of seagrasses worldwide, and so the seagrass species that I study uh, in Newport it's called Zostrum rhina or eelgrass. Um, and then for my second chapter. It's actually a species of seagrass called Posidonia oceanica or Neptune grass. And this, I know, <laughs> and this species uh, is found in the Mediterranean. Mm, yes. Yeah, very, so very tropical in comparison very, to the Oregon coast. Yes. I wish I had been there to collect the samples. Oh, yeah. Darn. <laughs> yeah. So the, at the Mediterranean, it's, it's a volcano under the ground. Yeah. Right? Well, yes. Okay. So um, these samples were collected um, on an island, Ischia Island, off of Italy. Um, and on the coast of Ischia, there are these volcanic vents that are, it's shooting up uh, CO2 into the waters. And that's kind of mim mimicking the effects of ocean acidification. And that's really nice. Uh, that's a really nice study site because it's just a naturally occurring acidified area mm -hmm, and right. there's sea, or there's Posidonia oceanica and both the acidified sites and sites far away where it's not really 
uh, you're not really seeing the effects of acidification. Yeah. Can we define what ocean acidification is and why we would want a study area for that? Yeah. So, I mean... It's, it's kind of been a hot topic lately. So, right. I mean, us as a species, humans, we've uh, generated a lot of CO2 uh, through yeah. various <laughs> means. We love and doing that. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's fun. <laughs> We're very good at it, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that goes up into, uh, into the atmosphere. And the ocean actually can absorb up to 25% of that CO2, of the human-generated CO2. Um, and that uh, CO2 can react with water to form um, hydrogen ions and bicarbonate. So the hydrogen ions is what's actually uh, lowering the pH of the water. And so this uh, can lead to a, a variety of effects for the organisms that are living in the ocean that are not used to uh, lower pH levels. Yeah. So for those who haven't taken chemistry in a while, pH is like how acidic something is. So a lemon would have a really low pH. So we're talking about the ocean becoming more lemony. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, um, and the organisms that are around don't do well in that environment, probably, because they did not evolve to live in that environment. Yeah, very true. Or either that or we don't know what's going to happen. Also, yeah. 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 They, they might like lemons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the hypotheses is that for organisms that have to form shells, like crabs... Um, Oysters. Oysters. Yeah. Bi yeah, bivalves, things like that. Um, they 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 would struggle because in a more acidic environment their their shells would become more brittle or they'd be unable to form them. It's a little more complex than that. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. But essentially that's kind of one of the concerns for organisms living in the ocean with a more acidic ocean. Yeah, weirdly enough for seagrasses though, they might actually be they're, they're hypothesized to actually do better under acidified conditions mm. uh, because they're, they photosynthesize. And so they presumably would enjoy the excess CO2 oh. or, and bicarbonates, which they can convert back to CO2. Mm. So it's really interesting, like, using that theory uh, to kind of tie into my microbiome work. Mm. Cool. And yeah. I think you also mentioned in our pre-interview a study that's... Um, going on here at OSU, kind of looking at that relationship between seagrasses, sea ocean acidification, and oysters. Yeah, I think right. that's an ongoing area of research in mm. a lot of places. Not yeah. sure. Oh, but, probably. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, um, it ha you know, if the seagrasses can kind of buffer that pH mm. for the oysters, then maybe they can do better in an acidified area. But yeah. I'm not I'm not sure if the results are truly conclusive. Yet. Oh, OK. <laughs> Again, it's like seagrasses may. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but guys, seagrasses are so important. So if you've never thought about them before, really appreciate them because they are <laughs> ecologically and economically important. Yeah. <laughs> Manatees live on them. Yes. That's so true. Yeah. I sometimes I forget, but I feel like I need to bring out the charismatic megafauna, megafauna whenever yeah. I need to like convince someone to really care about yeah. seagrasses. So Big like mammals. Ma yeah, manatees, sea turtles, even sharks. sharks. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All about the big, big animals in the ocean. <laughs> I study whales, that's why I'm so excited. Um, <laughs> um so you're in your fifth year of your PhD. Fifth year, yes. Yeah. Um, but you didn't start working on microbiomes when you came here. You already had experience doing that in your undergrad, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do you want to um, tell us, I guess, a little about your, I guess, first your journey to undergrad and what kind of, how how your passion for microbiomes first 
came Ooh. to fruition. Okay. Um, let's see. So my mom wanted me to be a doctor <laughs> when I went into undergrad. So I was like, fine, I will major in molecular cell biology. Um, and <laughs> I don't know. Fine, mom. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and, you know, it, that's really exciting to some people, but I was just not having it. Um, and then sometime my junior year, I took this class called... Uh, I think it was like microbial solutions to environmental problems or like environmental problem solving. But regardless, it was they talked about using the power of microbes to solve environmental problems. And I had been thinking a lot about problems in this world so i was like wow that's cool that's there's the answer it's mm -hmm. microbiology <laughs> yeah so um i got really excited and i emailed the professor who's teaching the class and i was like i need to join your lab and i want to do the kind of research that you're doing and he was like uh yeah free labor of course <laughs> um yeah so i spent a summer in his lab and that was really cool because i was like the first time i actually did any sort of science and i feel like i gained a lot of self-efficacy through that uh, experience, just like, wow, I guess I can be a scientist. Like, who knew? <laughs> um, so the project that he had me do was we were looking at agricultural plants. Um, and the so we're looking at the microbiome of agricultural plants and how different ways to grow them or cultivate them can change the microbiome of these plants. And so the two ways we were looking at is like, how can watering, different ways of watering affect these microbiota? So we did drip irrigation and sprinkling. And we also tried different shading mechanisms. And so primarily we were looking at um, this thing that uh, microbes can produce when they live on leaves it's called a biosurfactant so so a surfactant is kind of like it's kind of like dish soap it's very soapy and like mm -hmm. very slippery i guess mm -hmm. and it's but it's called biosurfactant because it's uh, it's a bio right. biology source yeah it's not fake soap <laughs> that you're putting on your hands yeah yeah and like uh heather mentioned that it's kind of like a microbial slip and slide <laughs> oh yes <laughs> which, i really like that imagery <laughs> yeah which i love i just imagine them like having a lot of fun on the leaves yes <laughs> Uh, yeah, so um, we were looking at how maybe like a correlation between biosurfactant production could lead to different sorts of like E. coli, for example. Mm. So, yeah, that was my first foray into microbiology. I Yeah, I think that's so this class that you took, Microbial Solutions to Environmental Problems or some wording of that <laughs> I think is such a cool class and I wish that it would have been Sounds an opportunity awesome. for me yeah, to take because I think you mentioned so like maybe people don't don't realize or think about what we can use these tiny microbes to do. I, I think one of the examples that you named was um, using communities of microbes to clean up oil spills. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, that's so amazing. I think people don't really realize that, yeah, we can. I mean, um, bacteria I, can do a lot. Yeah, <laughs> I had never thought of, like, before that class, I was just like, well, microbes, they cause disease. Yeah, yeah, always <laughs> bad things. Yeah. Yeah, and that class made me realize that microbes are actually, for the most part, really beneficial for humans mm -hmm. and for the world. So yeah. we should all be microbiologists. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like megafauna. <laughs> um, and okay, so after after this discovery, you were like, Mom, sorry, not going to be a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So after that, I was like, well, I really enjoy environmental microbiology. Um, and I was working with a postdoc at the time, and she recommended because she knew that I was also interested in, in ecology and she recommended like oh you should just do microbial ecology <laughs> like that's mm. the, the combination of your interests yeah. and so I I kept that in my back pocket for when I was applying to grad school nice 
Um, yeah. So you're from California, yes. right? And then you came. Now you're here. What I was am. the what was the transition of working in this lab as an undergraduate and then coming here to for grad school? Uh, could you elaborate on that? Like transition so you graduated yeah <laughs> and you did not immediately come to grad school correct so what were you doing <laughs> when you weren't in grad school and then what was the tr- what was the transition point where you said okay well now i'm ready to apply to grad school ah, and, got it and move on in <laughs> okay so after undergrad i i don't know i just i just want a job because i wanted to kind of like I don't know, spite my mom, be like, here, I can support myself without being a doctor. Uh, so nice. I... <laughs> Hi, mom. Hey, your face, mom. Love you. <laughs> yeah, so I uh, got a lab tech position at a biotech company. It was pretty local to where I did my undergrad. Um, so it was a place called Phoenix Biosystems, and we made amino assays for a variety of diseases. So I think we... When I was there, I worked on uh, biomarkers for chlamydia, HIV, different sorts of cancers, um, and it was it sounded really cool. And like the the end goal was to create uh, this kind of self diagnosing product where you can diagnose yourself and then plug it into your phone on an app, and you can diagnose yourself on the app. The app will tell you like, yes, you do have this disease, or Whoa. no, you're you're fine. Oh wow! Yeah, so yeah. you were involved in trying to make this yes yeah. um yeah there was a lot of there were a lot of obstacles in r&d um a lot of a lot of trial and error mm, i would say r&d oh research and development oh, my oh. Bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah but for the most part actually it was very repetitive mm. i mean w- when i say trial and error i was just like oh this reagent didn't work let's try this other thing but the assay was the same so i did a lot of uh, just trying things out and doing things that kind of leadership or like people with PhDs would tell me to do. And mm. so I found it to be really mind numbing and repetitive. Mm. So after a year of having PhDs tell you what to yeah. do, you're like, I'm sick of this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I want to tell people what to do. I exactly. want to be that PhD. <laughs> yeah. So I guess that's what sparked your 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 decision to apply for grad school after that one year yeah that that was the catalyst yeah <laughs> I'm done. Cool. Uh, so whenever you came to osu what was that transition like when starting living here it's not moving and then starting grad school and making new friends all of that stuff uh it was a lot yeah <laughs> Um, I mean, I don't know. Do you want me to like go into my, the, the research or like the, I don't know, the social aspect, <laughs> whichever. Okay. Um, well, I, weirdly enough, when I was growing up in California, I thought it was a very diverse place. Um, and now that I reflect on it, it was just really Asian and that's why I felt comfortable. Like it was, I guess <laughs> it was not as diverse as I thought it was. Um, but then coming to Oregon and like Corvallis, I was like, whoa, what's, what's happening? Um, it's, it's super homogenous. Um, and I didn't actually come to that realization until like two or three years in. Mm-hmm. I just knew that I felt some sort of discomfort or like didn't actually the word is like I didn't feel like I belonged and I wasn't sure why I just thought that was normal because I don't know grad students are sad all the time like I I guess that's why it's because I'm a grad student (laughs) a lot of us are sad often yeah that's true yeah so you you said that you felt like 
you didn't belong and maybe also like a little, I guess, misunderstood. I guess it was just very different here. And so... Yes, very... Yes, um, I guess growing up there was... Uh, I guess the word for it is like cultural shorthand uh, when you are with other people who kind of have the same lived experiences as you. Mm. You can say things or um, you don't need to define as many things for people. So an example would be Asian glow. <laughs> I was telling a group of people about my Asian glow because whenever I have one beer, I'm just my face is just like <laughs> tomato red. Mm. And some people were like, I, I don't know what that is. Wow. And that kind of was just like, ooh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So like missing that cultural shorthand. But, you know, that's kind of not all that is. There was there were also a lot of microaggressions that I faced mm-hmm. in Corvallis. Yeah. Can you uh, define what a microaggression is? Yeah. So it's hmm, I guess it's just like an an ignorant kind of like offhanded comment. So, for example, uh, many people have said this to me in Corvallis. It's like, oh, your English is really good. You And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I am an American. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. And like, I, and that also, it took me a long time to figure out like, why does that even bother me? Like, mm. there were a lot of, there was a lot of reflection and like different workshops I had to go to to actually figure out, like to kind of uh, articulate why mm-hmm. that's a problem mm-hmm. and why that's a problematic thing to say to someone. Yeah, sure. yeah. And so when you you said it, it it took like one or two years for you to like pinpoint why you felt kind of like uncomfortable here and so you decide you turn to an on-campus resource that we have yeah um you turn to caps yes um, love caps yeah <laughs> what was um i guess yeah what was that process what was like their suggestion to how to maybe deal with all of these things yeah so i went to caps um i I had like, I don't know, there was just like that consultation sort of and because they're, they're always busy. Mm. And so they're just trying to like give you some sort of advice. Mm. Um, and so I went in and I was like, yeah, I don't I don't really know what's wrong. Here's like a rambling list of things that are wrong. <laughs> and uh, the person I was talking to was like, oh, well, it sounds like you're just having sort of like identity and kind of like belonging issues. And so they uh recommended that I go to this, you know, CAPS has different counseling groups, right? Mm. So then one group that CAPS hosts is called uh, Multiracial Beavers. Mm. Um, And so my immediate reaction was like, uh, I am a hundred percent what well, i'm not multiracial yeah. so i am I, one racial yes, yes. <laughs> a single racial <laughs> monoracial like i don't yeah and i was like is there a multicultural group that i mm. could join um and they were like no but you know what this i think this could really help you and so i went and it was really lovely mm. although the whole time i still didn't feel like i belonged because right. again uh I, I just felt like I was taking up valuable space for someone else who mo- would actually need it, like someone right. else who, who was, was multiracial. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I think, yeah, CAPS, I mean, great resource, but yeah, very probably understaffed and underfunded. Like for yeah. a campus so big, like we need more people there, but that Definitely. is another discussion. <laughs> but right. So they sent you to this thing that wasn't really applicable. And even though you liked all the people that you met there, it wasn't yeah the right fit i guess yeah it didn't feel like the right fit for Mm. me um but one thing that i did learn going there was like that group had uh was pretty new and it formed because of this uh i guess retreat that the office of institutional diversity although back then i think it was diversity cultural and inclusion Mm. um 
yeah, but anyway, so they have these workshops every winter, and I feel like it would be beneficial for everyone to go because I learned about, a lot about myself. But so they had uh, this workshop called Multiracial Aikido, um, mm-hmm. and it's this retreat where they kind of teach you uh, how to respond to microaggressions uh, using the principles of Aikido. So define Aikido. <laughs> Uh, so I think Aikido is like a Japanese martial art where they, um, kind of use, uh, like energy or like they, you, they teach you how to deflect things or like use minimal energy to still have the greatest impact. Um, and so like a, a way that I learned, um, is like, if someone says your English is really good, you can kind of deflect that and say yours too. Mm. (laughs) Right. And then it makes them think, well, of course mine is good and then they're like well of course yours is good and yeah. Yeah. then their mind explodes a little yeah. bit it's like yeah. great we both speak the same language yeah <laughs> on brand with international women's day Ooh. when people are like uh what's an example so maybe people say things like oh well you're really good at science for a girl or like you're so pretty i never thought you would be a scientist <laughs> We hear things like this. And, a lot. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You're also pretty for a scientist. Exactly. <laughs> you're also cool that you're a boy scientist. Yeah, it's crazy yeah. that you're a boy scientist. <laughs> <laughs> so unexpected. Um, right. So you, right. And it was it was through this workshop, this multiracial Aikido, that you also then started like I think that's you you told us that's when you started questioning what name should I go by right it all kind of stemmed from that yeah yeah so so I didn't end up going to multiracial Aikido even though they had encouraged me to go oh because they're they're very nice but I was like <laughs> I, I need to tell you that I'm not not multiracial, multiracial yeah <laughs> so luckily for me they had uh racial Aikido oh, which was good amazing um yeah, so that's uh, where I kind of learned to... Well, that's where I started really self-reflecting because I kind of went in blaming the world and being like, here's a list of racist things that has happened to me in Corvallis. But I think the most important takeaway from Rachel Aikido was actually like I had a lot of internalized racism. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's where, you know, it's just kind of like you see things all... It's kind of... It's like internalized sexism too, right? Mm-hmm. Like you see a lot of these cues around you in the media just like in your daily life and you kind of like hold that within yourself Mm. and so that made me think about how I see other people what name I go by and just like how I live my life and it like sent me into like this existential crisis for like a year or two Mm. which that can't be easy during your PhD either I've just yeah I just kind of made that connection I guess Uh, PhD not the best time to have a mental crisis of any kind (laughs) Yeah, yeah, just using my brain a lot. Yeah. <laughs> it never rests. Yeah. Um and so I guess clearly there was a like a gap that needed to be filled in terms of like resources on campus for the like for what you were experiencing, right? Cuz there wasn't really a a group for you, you know, or you know, like yeah. So, yeah, you chose to make that group. Yes, kind of. <laughs> uh so um <laughs> At Racial Aikido, I met uh, another, I met actually a lot of other uh, female graduate students of color who were there and they kind of had the same issues and problems that I was having. Mm. Um, and coincidentally, uh, 
I think a month before was the Oregon Women in Higher Education Conference, where some of the people that I met at Racial Aikido had al- had also attended. And at the Oregon Women in Hi- Higher Education Conference, they have a women of color breakfast mm. uh, where they kind of like get together. And so like the women who are there really enjoyed that sort of community. Mm. And so when they were at Racial Aikido, they brought that idea to us and they were like, we should form some sort of group at OSU that kind of does the same thing. Mm-hmm. So from the conference and from Racial Aikido, we had a coalition of women, basically, who were like, we need this group because there's clearly a gap to be filled. Mm. And so when we came back to OSU, we all kind of worked together to form the Women of Color Caucus. Yay! That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and you're one, no, you're two years old. Yes. It's in its second year. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. Yes, it's very exciting. The first year was really cool. So, like, I had never been involved in a group like like this before, never been involved in sort of, like, starting anything. So there was a—I learned a lot just from, like— just about leadership, like communicating with people, like setting goal setting yeah. as a group. It was really cool. Yeah, that's yeah, that's really really great. What what like what is entailed in forming a caucus? I don't even know. Is it yeah? Is that so, a difficult process? Here? Um, I mean, we're 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 called the Women of Color Caucus because we're also a caucus within CGE, mm-hmm. the Coalition of Graduate Employees. Ooh, um, go yeah. CGE. Yeah. It. So uh, we decided to kind of like. Uh, fit ourselves in as many different uh, places as possible to kind of uh, increase our longevity Mm. because we had heard about uh, similar groups on campus that kind of like was created and then kind of just like disappeared when everyone graduated. Mm, Fizzled out. Yeah. yeah, And we really did not want that to happen. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a regular comp problem for grad students is that we're here for such a short period of time Mm. and within that time we were talking about this last week on the show also that grad students see this niche that needs to be filled and and undergrads too i think and then they try and establish it but the the faculty who are here long term are usually not involved or mm. there's not a permanent person and if you're faculty listening please Get involved. Yeah. Help that's us my, out. That's my plug. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it is, it's hard to f- make things stick and rooted in a place that you are at transiently. Yes. But yeah. it seems like you've done that. Yeah. Hopefully. Or you've all done that. I don't know. Teamwork. Here that's too. what teamwork is for. Yeah. 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 yeah we've kind of like transitioned the leadership into a, a new cohort of people. So that's awesome. Yeah. That was really scary also because I'm like, is could this happen? Like, will people want to lead? Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm excited to see what happens. So cool. if anyone wants to join the Women of Color Caucus, we awesome. have links. Reach out to Winnie Wang. Yeah. Yes. It'll be on the blog, yeah. um, which this week is not yet posted, but will be posted retrospectively so yeah go check out those links um at the end of the blog post about winnie and her research um on seagrasses yeah, yeah. i have really enjoyed this interview this has I been had a great a really interview. good time <laughs> Me too. This was fun. we laughed a lot <laughs> um well, we're very funny yeah <laughs> good one heather (laughs) thank you um so we have two traditions on the show um the first uh being that we ask you to give a piece of advice either to i don't know grad students in the world a past self a future self um yeah so who is the advice for and what is it yeah um so i think this piece of advice would be for my past self 
everyone, my present self, future self, everyone. <laughs> um, and it would be to not be afraid to ask questions and to ask for help. I feel like a lot of the opportunities and like things that I've done just came from like having conversations with people and mm. like asking for help when I needed it. And a lot of the time here, like, just relating to my research, I would be on Stack Exchange like for like two hours trying to fix a line of code when I could just ask <laughs> someone next to me, like, how do I do this? Yeah. So I think it applies in a lot of contexts. Mm. Yeah. 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 Uh, That's good awesome. Old, good old Stack, stack Exchange. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So our second tradition is for you, the interviewee, to choose a song and we'll play that song. So what song did you choose and why did you pick it? Okay. Um, so I picked... I Miss Those Days by Bleachers. And first of all, Bleachers is awesome. They're really good live, super energetic. And secondly, um, I hope that someday I'll look back on my PhD and my grad school days and think that I miss those days. Those were nice days. I think you will. <laughs> That's awesome. We'll see. Fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So enjoy the song, everybody. Yeah, enjoy the song. Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hamat. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible. This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Hulbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration. Thanks again for listening, and stay curious, my friends. <laughs>